of them radio station, they can't play like we. You know, really matter to me how much you play in the dance. Three killer radio station, where them not give them no chance. You know, really matter to me how much you play a party. None of them radio station, they can't play like we. You know, really matter to me how much you kick up in a dance. Let's just act like we're actually doing yeah. a show. Yeah. Colonization is bad for your health. Hey, Lorna here from the Survival Hi, Guide. This is Survival Guide's Joel Spring. Your flat white has a black history. Gentrification is colonization. All of us have to understand the colonial days. We don't have a choice. We have to understand it in order to survive in the colonial regime that we're under. Yeah, where I'm looking at is very much changing the whole paradigm and framework and making sure that we have people sitting at the top of the table. When we do create art, it is to continue that legacy of knowledge that we've been given, that legacy of resilience and persistence and resistance. It's not necessarily about the fact that we are targets. It's about how we live, work, deal with wearing that target. And that actively, as a tool, it encourages those behaviours as well. So it's incredibly problematic part of the dominant culture. Something that has to be fitted. The presence of my indigeneity is undeniable. Good, lucky that we're recording all of this. And you're listening to The Survival Guide with Joel and Lorna, taking you to the 2pm. Good morning. How is everyone? Hope you're having a good Friday. So today, we're taking you through a story of land, money, and we're conducting a second black audit. But that's that's right. So this episode is black audit um, two point zero. That's right. Yes, yes. Today we're going to be taking you through our own reflections from the last from the last year. What kind of where we've where we've been in the last year, where we were since our last Black Audit in episode nine in season one, some things that have gone by, some things that have happened, some things that have happened in the community, and what we're reflecting on in how to better engage with your own privilege and leverage that for the benefit of the communities that you live in. And I guess, you know, just focusing, just that focus on our community and what's been happening, using that as a mechanism to drive a conversation um, with a bit more of a national focus, a bit more of a broad sweeping um, conversation around money, stolen wealth. Stolen wealth, generational wealth, things that you did nothing for but reap the benefit of. We're talking about what's transpired in this community, where we're going, what we're seeing. Last in the season one we talked we were talking a lot about Redfern as a site in which a lot of wealth and capital has been injected into. None of this money found its way into the hands of the community. But in, in fact the state government and the city councils used issues within the communities to extract wealth. We've talked about how property is a form of extraction of capital from the land. 
just like agricultural production and mining, the property market is the third colonial methodology and modality of extraction of wealth from the land. Mm, and I guess, you know, we was really focusing on where all of these things have started from the starting point, um, which was uh, using the the death of a young person in the community um, who was impaled on a fence after being pursued by police, which was used as the thing to kind of justify um, having this redevelopment and having it as a state significant site where federal government makes decisions. Mm. And no local people or handpicked local people uh, are involved in this decision-making process. And the rest of us are, you know, none the wiser. The rest of us are finding out after the fact, after decisions are made. We've spoken about the contextualising the ideas of the colonial gaze and how that interacts and interferes with the way in which Aboriginal people in and outside the community live their lives, mm-hmm. the way in which the white, the white gaze structures and, and creates a, a colonised perspective on the lands. And we're trying to talk now to the different ways in which land and relationships to it can be understood. There's obviously a difference. There's obviously a disconnect between a white way of existing on this continent and an Indigenous way of existing. Yeah, because we have direct opposite worldviews and we touched a little bit on that in episode one, um, unpacking the colonial gaze. It's, you know, the narrative that we are just weaving, just it's the synchronicity of it is really, really amazing. Um, And, you know, as I said in that first episode and first season, we're still finding out the significance of our community. We're still unravelling the cultural significance and the historical significance of our community. Um, and, you know, we're people that are really interested in this stuff. Um, and we've gone to great lengths to find this information as well, which is why we now have an obligation to share it with the rest of us, with the rest of you. So an audit in and of itself is a investigation into the dealings and the accounts of somebody, of something, be it a company, a corporation, a group, a singular person. In this episode, we are trying to calculate some new things. What are we calculating? What are we calculating? Well, I guess understanding how people can leverage their privilege and accumulative costs and make a financial contribution. The whole pay the rent scheme, you know, that we really need everybody to understand. Um, and it's not, it's, not, it's not a scheme. This is something that has to happen in order to right the wrongs and in order to have that truth-telling and in order to create an equal level playing field. And you were talking about it like it was in the past, and I was like, well, where are we? I'm sorry. Um, I'm just looking at my notes. We, so, we travel through time and now we're in the future where we've got all this. Well, we kind of have to think. Wealth. We kind of have to think in the future. And this is the way that, you know, we're trying to get our heads around where we sit in the whole plans and the colonial project on top of the, re- the, the redevelopment of Redfern Waterloo that sits within the whole colonial project and the way that Sydney has been treated um, within that colonial project. Um, and, you know, I guess it's about quantifying all your privilege and what you have to leverage. On a local level, though, it's, it's about accumulating that stolen wealth and missed opportunities, stunting our growth before we're even aware of it and losing the game before it's even played. Um, uh, and giving away land and wealth that you do not own, you have no right to, and no entitlements and cannot prove that you have any right to. Um, you know, it's, it's huge. 
And I mean, this is something that is, you know, countlessly played out since the arrival of settlers in, you know, 1788. The the relationship, the the ex, you know, laying over of the ideas of land and title over indigenous knowledges, the parceling up of that land, and then the giving of that land away, either to convicts, the taking of the land through squatters' rights, all of these different relationships. But we're going to bring it back today mm -hmm. to a space in which, since we've last spoken to you, there has been some decisions made in our community about what land is worth, where land gets to go, and who in the community gets to make these decisions. But first off, I'm going to play uh, the second part of our tour that we went on um, a few weeks ago and just really bringing it back to what's happening in our community and using that as the mechanism to drive the rest of this conversation and link it all back into, you know, the front line of invasion and, uh, you know, the, the community that has been built there on top of that in response to all of this. So I'm just going to play our, our second little walk second around. Second step on the tour. That's it. Take it away. Hey, how you going? Good. All right, we're here at Redfern Post Office. Just walked up Redfern Street. The site of a new cultural hub that's just been announced. The building being given back to the local Aboriginal community. I guess to kind of recreate the organic kind of cultural hub, political hub that we were just talking about with the Black Theatre. Of course, after all that stuff's been eroded. Of course, after all that stuff's been eroded. So at this point, where we are, we're on Redfern Street and just down the hill here again, looking at the land and looking at the ridgeline, looking at how we sit at this high point. Looking down on George Street, you would have had a clear view of the last camp in the area, now Prince Alfred Park. So Aboriginal people were moved on from there. But as Sydney was being built up, Aboriginal people were pushed out. There was a world exhibition in the early years of the colony, so Aboriginal people that were living down in the caves around the rocks, they had been there for a very long time. They had survived the the smallpox epidemics. They had survived a lot of the really aggressive kind of dispersal methods that were used. There's not much known about that camp, but it was a camp where Benelong's son had to undergo a payback ceremony. One of the things that I found out in my research is a name. So one of the names that was taken from the local language and given to one of the streets in the laneways here um, just in between where we walk. Uh, I'm not quite sure exactly. And I've asked around, I've asked people that are, you know, learning language and, and immersing themselves in this sort of stuff. No one can really give me the meaning of that. And that's, you know, something that happens with language as well is that sometimes it can't actually be translated, which, you know, just kind of shows us that when they picked that, word and put it on the street that it was white people that made those decisions um, not Aboriginal people and this is a lot of the work that we as young Aboriginal people knowledgeable of all these things have to kind of do. I think that's an interesting sort of point to go off where we're located now on the corner of George and Redfern Street at the post office which is now being sort of put to an advisory committee of community members or people who are no longer actually within the community to make a decision about what should this, we're standing in front of it, it's a colonial sandstone building or at least the appearance of one and has been painted it's got a bell tower and a clock you know it's it's very much it's first settlement yeah it's got prominence on redfern street it says it was built in 1882 but it's interesting to think that kind of trying to use the aesthetics or use this old colonial building to incorporate an, an indigenous cultural center one that's kind of 
been declared by an advisory committee that is essentially, you know, a mechanism of the, of the state or of the city to come to decisions about what to do, to get sign off from a few Aboriginal people about what is important in this community. But it seems like within that story of what you're telling about the street name, without actually knowing what it means, this is sort of playing out that same logic. It's Definitely. No, it's the same thing over and over again. And again, you know, this is what happens when um, local community is not involved in decision making processes. It then means that a lot more work has to be done after the fact. So with this building, there's some concerns setting up a cultural hub. And the way that a lot of the structures and institutions work is that they're never quite benefiting us. They're never quite doing these things to benefit this community. And because they have that focus, there's concerns that this cultural hub won't necessarily be for the community, but will have a national focus. Right next door, we've got the Redfern Telephone Exchange. The Redfern is not only important to Aboriginal people, it's important to the whole Industrial Revolution. All of these advancements that have been made in this country have happened here. This was a place that was full of factories and things like that. Uh, it was a swamp. So it was a place that nobody wanted to live in for a very long time, until now really. So every phone call that would be made in the country would have passed through that exchange. This is also the first street where electric lights were tested out. Before that, they would usually make children climb up and light, light the, the lamps. Gas lamps, yeah. Redfern is not only special to us, but it's also special to everybody else. Not many people acknowledge this history or are aware of it, but it's given something to everybody. It sits historically within everyone's kind of cultural memory, whether or not they believe it, whether or not they acknowledge it, it is a space in which huge amounts of difference and change have affected everyone's life in this country. That's right, you know, and even looking at the train station, that was the first rail line outside of Sydney, was from Redfern train station. I mean, all of these things, they have linked the rest of the country to this place. And again, what the basis of a lot of these talks and tours that I do is just really building that case up about how much Redfern and this community, Redfern and Waterloo has given to the rest of the country. So now in our time of need, what are you gonna give back? So we'll keep moving, we'll move along. Second step on the tour, we walk past Redfern Post Office. What's in store for Redfern Post Office in the future? Well, we're gonna tell you, we're gonna figure this out together. First, I just wanted to go back and just explain that the reason why Redfern Street was used, or the first electrical lights was lit on Redfern Street was because Red Waterloo Redfern had a substation. It was the first substation that could actually power factories as well as street lights as well as homes. Um, so that's I just wanted to go back there. It's amazing and clarify how, that. how many how many different first examples there are within the city context of Sydney, but the cities across Australia that happened in Redfern. That's right. It's With the industrial uh, technological advancement the, you know, what all of the things that are responsible to the self-determination of Aboriginal people through the last century, but as well as things that have gone on to affect every country, every part of Australia, every mm -hmm. city in Australia, every state. Yeah, it's definitely been used to, it's definitely been used to, um, you know, it's been used to further push the colonial project through to the rest of the landscape around it and after it. Um, and what we're trying to say here, when we have these conversations about what plays out in Redfern and Waterloo, is the city is the fabric through which the ideas of colonialism and these things happen, right? The technological advancement of the colony is not detached from the 
theft of land, the extraction of minerals, the use of livestock. These are all connected themes, and it's interesting and very pertinent to be to always bring back the point that it's just, these things happened first in Redfern and Waterloo, and they have done since arrival. That's right, and if you want to understand these tools, these colonial tools, um, you know, and survive them, you really have to look at the experiments that were conducted in Redfern Waterloo and the front line of that invasion. Um, I just, uh, I, I wanted to, there's so much to talk about all the time. And, you know, this is why this whole show and this whole program is put together is because we recognise that gentrification is just colonisation. It's just a new wave. And we like to look at it in waves because it is all connected. And I guess people you know, get really caught up in these experiments and these colonial projects because they're not linking all of these things together and it's uh, it's an isolated thing, um, you know, which makes it real easy to be gaslighted. Um, Electric lights, gaslights, we were just talking <laughs> about them. But, but, you know... Don't let like, the city gaslight you. Well, it has been for so long, you know, and it continues to. Um, and that's really what's happening with this new dispossession that's happening. And the next 20 years of dispossession that's going to happen while this area is going to be redeveloped. But what's happening in Redfern Post Office? Well, I think we I think we I think we spoke in length about that. Um, you know, long story short, the council city has decided that they would purchase that building on behalf of the Aboriginal community um, and negotiate with their Aboriginal advisory board about how that is best used. It's so, a very prominent building. It's on the corner of Redfern and George Street, across the road from Domino's, across the road from Centrelink. Yeah, but it's, it's you know, you've got that clock tower like you mentioned there in the in the banner. You did a really great description of, of that place. Um, and I have a little bit of inside information that I'm trying really hard to think how I'm going to share this within this, this conversation. So, you know, when, when this was announced, I feel like it, it reminded me of another parcel of land that was closer to the block that had been sold to the rest of the community that it was going to be a community centre for us. But what it's kind of ended up being was just an extension of the city council. So they employ Aboriginal people there and they have Aboriginal faces there greeting you, but they are officially um, employees of, of the council, um, which, you know, brings in a few other issues when we talk about that sort of stuff and autonomy and self-determination and having Aboriginal community-controlled organisations that are accountable to community and nothing else and no one else. And when council makes these decisions, it puts them right in the middle of that and forces people, forces everyone to be accountable to them instead of the community. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's something that could easily be hijacked and deterred and we've seen how this has happened before. So it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. That's right. Um, you know, and I guess that's why we have to watch it closely. The uh, city's probably also, you know, the city's considering the fact that they have seen the community be moved, displaced, changed so dramatically in the last 20 years. From their perspective, they're probably thinking that they're doing something good. 
but within the context of what's happening and within the, the, the embeddedness of how this operates, the city was never embedded in Redfern. The council has never been really embedded in Redfern in the way that it wants to be. Well, they've stayed very quiet as well in amongst all of these plans and amongst all of these, you know, schemes that benefit private developers and not the community. Um, everyone's been really quiet, which is why we have become so loud, I guess, about linking all this together. We are obligated to let you fellows know what's going on. But what I found out is that... Spill it. ...is that they purchased that building purely because they had Aboriginal money to do so. So it wasn't... From what I'm hearing, it just confirms what I thought. It was never about the community. It was to ensure that the City City Council has office on Redfern Street. Makes sense, right? And it, it, really, when we look at the track record, what have they done? What have you done for me lately, City City Council? Um, what have you done for me lately, City City Council? Really, truly, Clover, what have you done? Because everything that you celebrate and herald as great achievements isn't really benefiting anyone. My people are still starving. My people are still dying 20 years before, you know, everyone else. They're, they they have inherited poverty. You know, when everyone else has been allowed to accrue wealth on top of us. Exactly. Um, Generational wealth, accumulative wealth through the speculative property market and through which everything else that Indigenous people have not been able to participate in due to large-scale structural racism and a a myriad of other things within the predatory nature of the way that the the city operates. So money is, is a very interesting tool that is used against us time and time again. So it's about time that we start to get our heads around it and really think about it for what it really is, is a system of currency that values land and values objects in ways that we actually traditionally have no comprehension of. Well, currency is the equation of a unilateral value system on what is what is exchangeable, right? It's it's an ability, I mean, I mean, historically, the way that currency has operated and currency has continued to operate was, ori- was originally through the context of warfare. Soldiers were given gold or silver coins to be able to exchange with people in the communities that they passed through because no one wanted to... No one wanted to have a relationship with a soldier. A soldier was someone from another land who had killed people more more likely than not. And currency was the advent of communities, not because the way that communities generally engaged in trade was I'll give you this and you'll give me that and these things are equitable and we'll have a debt and we'll continue to be in our debt because we're in a community, right? Currency operates in a way that means I don't relate to you. I will never need to relate to you. I just want the thing you have and you're going to take this. And like money, money in and of itself, like what is that? So we're going to unpack a lot of this with you today. We're going to talk about some historical elements. We're going to have a white expert come in and talk to you about this. And then we're going to um, round it off with some really amazing conversations. But we're not going to give that away just yet. We're going to cut to a music break and we'll be back to talk to you a little bit more about money. You're listening to Survival Guide with Joel and Lorna every Friday on Radio Skidro 88.9 FM. Keep listening. Keep it locked. Look. 
My bitch is all bad, my niggas all real. I ride in his dick in some big tall hills. Big fat checks, big large bills. Run out, flip like 10 car wheels. Cold ass bitch. I give Ross chills. 10 different looks, and my looks so kill. I kiss him in the mouth, I feel all grills. Heat in the car, that's still on wheels. Woo! I was born a flex. Yes. Diamonds on my neck. I like boarding jets, I like morning sex. Woo! But nothing in this world that I like more than checks. Money. All I really wanna see is the Money. I don't really need to be any the Money. All a bad bitch need is up. I got bands in the coop, bustin' out the roof. I got bands in the coop, touch me, I'll shoot. I'll shake a little ass, you get a little bag and take it to the store. Get a little cash, you shake it real fast, you get a little more. I got bands in the coop, bustin' out the roof. I got bands in the coop, bustin' out the roof. I got a fly, I need a jet, shit, I need room for my legs. I got a baby, I need some money, yeah. I need teeth for my egg. Trouble, bring brass knuckles to scuffle. I heard that Cardi went pop. Yeah, they go pop, pop. That's me busting that bubble. I'm the signing with the drip. Baby mommy with the clip. Walk out bodies with a bitch. Bring a thotty to the whip. And she find what she think. God damn, walking past the mirror. Ooh, damn, I'm fine. Let a bitch try me. Boom, hammer time. Uh. I was born to flex. Diamonds on my neck. I like boarding jets. I like morning sex. But nothing in this world that I like more than checks. All I really wanna see is the Money. I don't really need to be any the All a bad bitch need is the Money. I got bands in the coop Bussin' out the roof I got bands in the coop Touch me, I'll shoot I'll Shake a little ass Money. You get a little bag and take it to the store Get a little cash Money. You shake it real fast, you get a little more I got bands in the coop Bussin' out the roof I got bands in the coop Touch me, I'll shoot Bitch, I'll pop your pop. Bitch, I'll pop whoever. You know who pop the most shit? The people who shit not together. You know that cardio freak? All my pajamas is leather. Bitch, I'll back on your ass. Wakanda forever. Sweet like a honey bun, straight like a tummy gun. Roll in one on one. Come get your mommy some cardio. Get the tip top, bitch. Kiss the ring and kick rock, sis. Uh, jump it down, back it up. Ooh, ayy. Hey. Make that nigga put them 2K. I like my niggas dark like dude. Say, you gonna eat this ass like soup. I was born to flex. Diamonds on my neck. I like boarding jets. I like morning sex. But nothing in this world that I like more than culture. All I really wanna see is the I don't really need to be any though. All a bad bitch need is the KKC. And we're back. You're listening to Radio Skid Row 88.9 FM. You're with Joel and Lorna on Survival Guide. Breaking down colonialism, breaking down gentrification, breaking down colonization. Talking about money. This is a Black Audit 2.0, part two. We had a go in season one unpacking, you know, how much money has been spent on the redevelopment and the community, but how much has actually been benefiting the community and creating programs and funding actual stuff that we need. So I guess, you know, 2.0 is a more broader approach. Um, for those of us, for those of you who weren't with us last season, I do recommend you go back and listen to Black Order 1.0. But we're just going to give you a little refresher. We essentially investigated the period of about 14 years in which the community has gone through a huge amount of upheaval so that's from 2004 to today. 2018. 
Oh, exactly. is that last year? Sorry. Exactly. Well, and, and, and speaking about the sort of the mechanisms within the planning structures, within the legislation, within the government that have created the conditions in which Redfern is now in today, the money that has come through that can come through the literal bricks and mortar, the land and the ground of that space, and how little of it was given to the community. Over $350 million was pumped through Redfern Waterloo between the years of 2004 to 2018. This was through the development of Alexandria Park, with the, the NCIE. Carriage works. Carriage works. A great, a great deal, the Redfern Oval redevelopment, a, a great deal of other things, the selling of the Rachel Foster Hospital. But not one cent was spent on any Aboriginal community programs addressing antisocial behaviour or any of these issues that have been used as, as the scapegoat. As leverage. It's Yeah, it's been used um, to further disperse um, and eradicate um, poor people and Aboriginal people from the cityscape. That, that episode gave you some context of where we're coming from and what we're talking about in relationship to what we feel in our community. But maybe that leaves you feeling a little bit like, I don't know, what can I do to help? This has all happened. What's going on? I don't live in Redfern. I'm not a gentrifier. You are. And we're going to talk to you now about the way that this has gone on historically. Well, that's it. All of these, when we talk about institutionalised racism, we're talking about institutions that have been founded upon the exclusion and genocide of our people. You know, we're trying to steer this conversation to reparations. Taking, having some kind of uh, toll, some kind of, you know, some kind of way to be able to measure all of this trauma and measure the fact that we're still here trying to get people to understand that genocide has happened in this country. You know, we act like a war-torn country, but no one really wants to talk about the war that's happened here. Um, and that's why, again, you know, it's always important to talk about where it happened first and where it's reached first. So this part um, is where I would like to ask Joel to just give a bit of a recap because my deadliest um, family members um, are always listening to podcasts and stuff like that. They told me to check this one podcast out, which was from... History Lab. It's the... So, Sorry, can you say that again? History Lab. It's the first episode of the second season. came out the end of last year. Uh, this is a podcast that comes through to SER. They do Australian history explorations into different ideas. And this first episode was around the opening of Australia's first bank. Um, and, yeah, so apparently there was money already in this bank before it had opened and they was really curious um, to find out who that person was and how that came to be. Um, who so, made this first deposit? Um, and I guess what was found out from what I listened to was they had tracked the money that came, it came from a soldier that was uh, in a regiment that has a little bit of, um, it's, it's infamous in Aboriginal communities when we talk about um, you know, a lot of the massacres and stuff like that. And when Joel told me, what is the regiment, sorry? I believe it was the 46th or the 47th. I remember when you told me that, it just like literally rang alarm bells in my head like it was, like I had heard a, a gun fired, like it was like, holy shit. That's that intergenerational trauma. 
It is. Um, and it's that bone and blood uh, reaction and memory that we that I've been talking about, you know, even handling money. I get anxious. My palms sweat. I don't want to hold it. Um, so to give you a recap on this conversation, we're trying to draw the relationship that you have to your own money, your own bank account, the things that you understand as maybe not being so antagonist or so aggressively colonial in their uh, histories. But, you know, you have to remember that every institution that's been built on this country is complicit and active within the upholding of the colonial system. So just just to bring it back, what that podcast had uncovered was that um, that money was being paid to this sergeant um, and it was like the equivalent of $90,000 today. Um, so when the bank opened in 1817 and on the Monday when members of the colony came in to make their deposits, they came, they, there had already been a deposit made into the bank. And that bank, that was, uh, that was of the, at the time it was 50 pounds, which to, in today's rates would be the equivalent of $90,000, which is a greater deal amount of money. Um, within, the, I believe, like you should listen to the podcast, everybody, yeah, but have it, have within, within the storyline, kind of what's discovered is um, a historian and an accountant go through Westpac, which is now what the first Australian bank was, archives to kind of uncover the accounts and the balances, you know, essentially going through their own audit of Governor Macquarie and some of the, his right-hand men, some of the men who sat within regiment 40, the 46th Regiment and uncovering how it was that someone who was only making a couple of pence every week could have made a deposit this large into Australia's first bank. And it's very, it, it, paints a, it paints the very clear history, the very bloodied history of the frontier wars and the colonial displacement of First Nations. Mm. So these soldiers were being paid, they were being paid a lot of money to round up and murder Aboriginal people and eradicate them from the Australian landscape. So that Governor, Governor Macquarie, I, could, I, I guess, could um, give these plots away as rewards um, to other convicts and other soldiers and things like that. And, you know, when we talk about reparations, we really have to hit all of these institutions that have been built on blood money. That is really, when we talk about reparations, that is the starting point. So I guess through the show we're kind of going to have a conversation around a national tally, a national tally of how much money all of our mob should be entitled to, how much money has been floating around and how much money um, has been exchanged for that genocide that has happened and that they still keep celebrating every 26th of January as well. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to start. I'm just going to start with that we should all just get a million dollars each first. Well, my mum always says, you know, we should be millionaires in our own country. And the fact that we're not, while everybody else has comfortability and has some kind of wealth, while we are inheriting intergenerational poverty, speaks, speaks volumes. So we're going to, I guess you, you spoke to a white expert. Yeah, I sat down with a planning academic uh, named Gwydi Porter. She works at RMIT down in Melbourne. Uh, she came up to Sydney and we had a chat. Uh, at the studio in 2SDR. I uh, interviewed her on some of the work that she's been doing down there, trying to negotiate with councils and fiscally supporting sovereignty. 
mm, and trying to hit these institutions. So let's let's go to this white expert. Can you just give us a little background on what it is you do and where you're from? Uh, my name's Libby Porter and I am an uninvited guest uh, living on Woiwurrung, Woomerung lands um, in what is now the city of Melbourne. I'm a researcher and educator at RMIT University in the Centre for Urban Research. Um, I'm a public housing activist <laughs> and uh, most of my work is really around dispossession and displacement and the role of urbanisation as a process and structure that um, drives that um, and in particularly in settler colonial contexts such as this um, where the that imposes a particular burden um, on Indigenous people. So from your perspective, what do you see as a responsibility of a settler in the given context? One step um, or dimension of that, I think, is to think about how to become able to become responsible. So there's... uh, you know, we, we, I think we've got to kind of peel away some layers that are extremely unhelpful in our popular discourse about Indigenous settler relations um, in this country at the moment. Um, uh, there's the obvious big one, which is just fundamentally a racist society. Um, so we, there's that to deal with. There are the, the levels that are so unbelievably in our faces at at the moment, um, in, in Indigenous people's faces in particular, at the moment around um, white privilege um, and the and white fragility and the inability of whiteness to perceive itself. Um, and so we've got to kind of peel back through there. And I think part of that work, speaking as someone blinded by their own whiteness much of the time, um, is about learning how to become responsible, able to respond. Um, and that's a lot to do with thinking about who we are um, in this place, how we can belong in a good way, um, in, a, in a lawful way, law uh, from, from the places that we are in place to each of us on land. Um, and then that invites a conversation about, well, then what would it mean for me to take up space here? In, in my taking up space um, on this land, who is now not here because I'm taking up space? So how is my privilege built on um, those layers of dispossession? Not as a form of of, of guilt mongering and and um, and sort of endless um, sentimental reflection in a deeply unhelpful um, and whitely and fragile way, um, but instead as a way of kicking us out into a, a different kind of conversation. Um, and part of that could be around financial obligations, thinking about obligation as also financial. And so if we think about sovereignty um, as uh, some kind of territorialized um, ability to govern in a self-determining way um, the place in, that you belong to, uh, which is a kind of fundamental human construct, I think, um, albeit not a universal one in, this, in the way it's practised. Uh, it requires resources of, of various kinds. It requires an economy. And, of course, in the Australian context, across the Australian continent, it's always had um, resources. So the, the economy um, of Australia prior to invasion was an incredibly complex and sophisticated thing that operated uh, in, in an extraordinary way. So we maybe can't replicate that or, or, for want of better terms, return to it, but how do we recognise the loss of that economy in a contemporary context? Um, and so I guess finances are one way to do that. Uh, and I think that also helps us understand a little bit more sharply the 
ways in which, uh, in the context that you're thinking about in, in Redfern um, and for us in, in Nam Melbourne, is the way in which urbanisation extracts wealth in a particular kind of way um, and distributes that wealth uh, in, in highly uneven ways that continues to perpetuate exactly the things that, that we're talking about, dispossession and marginalisation. So it also offers us a little way into that dynamic to just push at it and poke at it at a little bit more. Um, and I think any way that we can push and poke at that dynamic, we should. Uh, so it offers that opportunity as well. Can you explain fundamentally from your perspective what reparations could mean in an urban context? Hmm. Um, I think there's a couple of different dimensions to, to an answer to that. Um, and, and I guess the first dimension is to just be mindful of contestation around the term reparations. Um, so what are we trying to repair and even is it possible to repair through a financial kind of lens, which I, you know, base don't think we can, which doesn't mean that we shouldn't have that maybe as part of our conversations. Um, and so we're coming at this uh um, project, for want of other words, um, from that perspective, that we know that this is actually deeply flawed um, and m might even, and this is a kind of abiding concern that keeps me awake at night, um, cont continue to kind of buy into and incite the liberal politics of recognition where we can, you know, white folk like me can pat ourselves on the back and say, look, we've repaired something or we've paid the rent or we've done reparations in, in some minor form and, and, you know, that's job done and we can all go home and rest easy on that. Um, so, so I'm... Uh, at one level kind of disturbed by um, reparations and at another level really excited about the kind of different conversation that it might allow us to have. Um, so in the context of NAM um, in, in Melbourne, we've been trying to do some work with um, a, a large team and, and group of people um, from all different kinds of perspectives and, and um, areas of expertise, housing markets and political science and governance and taxation law, um, Indigenous studies, uh, history, all, all manner of, of people, uh, to bring good brains together to think through what it might mean to implement mechanisms that allow um, the uh, the repair, the return of, of uh, wealth that's being extracted um, to the... Uh, the sovereign peoples of that country. Um, and so the very specific mechanism that we're looking at um, is a little clause that's just sitting quietly and gently in the Victorian Local Government Act, uh, which says that it's possible to uh, for private landowners to use part of their rates um, through an agreement with the local council um, for some kind of public good. And so um, it's a kind of extra little levy, if you like, um, that people actively sign up to and say that they're, they're keen on that. It's only ever been applied to conservation, but there's nothing in the Act that says it can't be applied in other things. Uh, and so it suggests to us the possibility that within an existing um, settler uh, legal structure is this little chink of light where we might be able to see a way to um, enable a grade, uh, some kind of greater form of access to what has um, been thought about in the native title 
language um, as extinguished native title on private property um, because that's where the forms of dispossession are so intense. And so we're interested in trying to figure out, well, what would that mean to do that and how would it work in, in a governance way, um, in the governance questions? Uh, what would it deliver? Would it deliver any benefit? Um, is this what a, a useful thing to pursue? Um, so there's lots of questions around, around that kind of thing. Um, but we're keen to kind of think about it as a possible conversation, um, especially in a treaty context, where at the moment we're not really talking about land, <laughs> as far as I can tell. In a system that's so rigidly structured to distribute wealth, how can we better look at what is owed than just those conditions? Because the rich already evade tax. Who do we need to agitate? as well as trying to just be, you know, shifting policy and, 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 and contending with property market. Mm, yeah, yeah, no, it's a really good question. Because land is everywhere and everywhere is country, it, it's sort of, ev it's everything. I think the public discourse question is exceptionally important. Certainly in our conversations uh, within our team about this particular idea that we're trying to um, develop a little bit more and, and put out there for conversation, very much became... Uh, a question about how, in the treaty context, will non-Aboriginal people in Victoria think of themselves as treaty people? Because we're not having that conversation at all. So the, the whole treaty conversation, deeply flawed as it is, um, is really seen in the popular discourse, the, the mainstream non-Indigenous discourse, as a sort of Indigenous thing over there, something that the government's doing. Now, so that's our government too, um, and we are in. There's there's two sides to a treaty, um, or probably more than two sides, but at least two sides to a treaty. Um, so what's our role? What what are we responsible for in the treaty relationship? Um, what is the sovereign relationship? How do we practice it every day in what we do? So I think we have to find a way in our public discourse to start having that conversation to bring non-Indigenous people along on a journey of we're treaty people. We have treaty obligations and one of those obligations might be about thinking about how we live in our society and what we owe for our ability to live in that society, for the fact that we're there. Um, and that then can help explode exactly, as you say, um, the kind of temporal dynamic of this as, as if it was linear, um, but also the inability to think about that as a future right, which we never talk about, um, the Indigenous future of the city uh, and, and this country and not just the past where we're sort of repairing for something that happened a long time ago and, you know, we'll try and make it good um, in its best case scenario. Me coming from a position of wanting to see these things, use the context of the instance in the past of when land right came into effect where you saw a large discourse kind of mobilise around protecting your property from Indigenous people. Yep. I mean, there was like incredibly racist and really like awful ad campaigns. But how do we position yeah. this conversation? <laughs> it's, it's a bit that's keeping me away, Joel, <laughs> um, because that's exactly my worry is that is this more, would this do more harm than good? And I don't know the answer to that question. Maybe none of us knows the answer to that question. I certainly don't have it. Um, so I think the only thing that we can do when, when we're uncertain and we don't know what to do is to work with integrity in relationship to the law of country and the people that 
are expressing all of that stuff to us all the time and be really attentive to what the possibilities are and what the risks are and know when to get out of the space, know when to shut up, which sometimes I'm not very good at, um, and and be able to make those kind of judgment calls, I guess, um, in those moments of thinking, okay, this maybe this isn't a good thing to do. Uh, maybe we're not ready. Uh, maybe we're not, you know, our public discourse is not robust enough and is not mature enough to, to do this. You know, I hear a lot of, um, especially Aboriginal activists, say all the time, You've been wa- we've been waiting a long time. We can wait a little bit longer. Um, it's what I hear sometimes. Um, and I go, wow, okay, because I'm really keen to, you know, make stuff happen. Well, I'm sure everybody's keen to make stuff happen, but I also hear maybe sometimes slow down um, or stop and let's think about it differently or whatever. So I think it just... Yeah, I, I don't have an answer. I have a whole lot of worries about exactly what you're saying. I have all sorts of you know, negative 2GB voices in my head or something that um, worry me about what kind of backlash there might be um, and that people like me will not bear the burden of that backlash, right? Um, and I'm I'm pretty conscious of that too. You mentioned the ability to respond and being response-able. I think that this idea as a projective one is a very useful perspective on on the work that needs to be done prior to engaging in these conversations, which then brings in a conversation of the labour of Indigenous people that is often unpaid to give insight into the perspectives, the fragility of white people. That does then make conversations around treaty, reparations, recognition and colonisation within institutions really difficult to have when you've got all these fragile white people around who, who, who expect not have to pay for the access to the information that they need to be better. So within that, Survival Guide is a guide. We're trying to construct a kind of a perspective going forward on how to survive the fucked up world that we live in. Do you have any tips? We have a huge white listenership as well because we live in this country. I think a lot of people use this as a resource to engage in what are lofty terms that maybe they don't feel they feel excluded from in the public discourse around these things or institutional conversations around these things. So do you have any sort of personal tips and you feel have helped your own perspective on these issues? Mm, probably lots. Um, <laughs> how to frame them coherently for you. I mean, I think at the heart of the stuff that we, as in I speak as a a white fella, need to do is really about truth-telling and about coming to terms with the truthfulness of our existence here. So I guess that means doing your research on um, your history, (laughs) not necessarily your own personal history, although that could be interesting too, because it's not about saying you know, I come from people who've got blood on their hands. I mean, we've all got blood on our hands. It's just the structure that we live in. Um, We have blood on our hands for all sorts of intersecting reasons as to how oppression and injustice occurs in in contemporary society. So it's not not really about doing that, but about coming to grips with how how did you come to be here? How do you belong here? What's the history of this place? So really simple stuff like, you know, going and finding that out would be good. Not, I might say, by going and asking Aboriginal people who live in your neighbourhood or who are in some kind of, you know, 
noticeable organisation in your neighbourhood uh, because that's not their job and, nor, as you said, nor should we you know, require their labour in, in that regard. That's our job to go and learn our, our history better because our history knowledge is extremely poor in this country um, and so we have got to come to terms with what really is the foundation of our society. So there's that. And I think then there are ways of thinking about who we are. There's a little bit of sort of, I guess, personal soul searching as part of that. And there's some really good resources around to do that, not as a sort of navel gazing exercise, but about coming to terms with whiteness. I think we need to talk a lot more about whiteness not to put it in the centre and then keep pushing indigeneity out or blackness out or, or anything like that. There's always a difficult dimension and dynamic around that. But to become much clearer about the ways in which whiteness structures how we move around every day in our society, how whiteness anticipates our arrival in every social setting, in every job interview, in every boardroom. It, it, we're just anticipated. And so we need to come to grips with understanding that a little bit more, in fact, a whole lot more. Um, and there are really good books around, so I'm just finishing reading at the moment, Robin D'Angelo's wonderful um, White Fragility, which is extraordinarily clear and beautifully written and, of course, from another context, but works really well here, I think, um, certainly. Uh, it speaks very closely to me. There's Claire Land's wonderful book, Decolonising Solidarity. There's great wor work around we can use and read to help us dig a little deeper into, into that kind of stuff. There's two small ways that don't rest the labour um, on uh, Aboriginal bodies, but instead on our own resources and intellects and, and drive um, to make that different. Welcome back. That was uh, Libby Porter talking to us about some of the work that she's doing, um, some of the probably not enough um, self-reflection and criticality. <laughs> I even cut the white expert off. I didn't even let her finish. Um, yeah, I was reacting the whole way through that we was having a conversation. So I guess let's see how we go with bringing that conversation into um, on air. Um, there should be cameras that. in here. It's just all there I'm saying. Be all the time. You should have seen Luna's face. But all the time. I, I think I think for one, the reason why we brought this person in and the reason why we're not going to focus on it a great deal more for this show is it's not our job to be critiquing and, and dismantling the whiteness. Uh, Even though we understand it and have to for our own survival, we shouldn't be the ones responsible for that. Um, and you know, I, I really, I really just wanted to, to just put it out there as well is that how many white podcasters are talking about whiteness? How many white people and white academics are actually talking about whiteness? Because our white expert, you know, just referenced white people, a couple of books and a couple of materials that are out there. And she's talked about the work that she's doing, um, about you know around these levies around um, levies around ta uh, taxes and getting people to pay their rates and their council to go towards the greater good of the community. Um, and it's usually used for conservation and environmental stuff, which again makes me laugh because you know black are always left out of the environmental question, which is that that's why the landscape is destroying you mob because you refuse to include us and in any of the decision-making processes on a landscape that we have maintained and kept since since the first life. sunrise like since exactly since the first sunrise since life as we know it has existed and it's your own fault for that um you know and i i really 
blinded by our own whiteness. I find I find that uh, that's a great comment out of there because all I heard in that whole conversation was was a whole lot of white entitlement and white guilt in a way that she's focusing on the institutional reparations but what exactly is she paying that's what I would like to know and that's what I really really want to know is who what is she actually doing for the mob that have been displaced so that her family could live and her family could send her to university because you know a lot of us have $26,000 hex debts and that's just the base rate like and that she probably comes from a generation that went to school and uni for free um you know it's great to hear white people talking about this but it's not enough unless they can actually give examples of what they are doing and what they are doing on an individual scale and level and not just the work that they are doing and again you know white people you just need to really unpack your whiteness and you's really I, I find it amazing that you can be blinded by your whiteness happens to everybody and I think it's also a testament to the conversation we were having earlier about currency and about money it's that compartmentalization of life and I think it's the same in professions it's that compartmentalization of the role of the person within the institution and the work that they might be wanting to do like they might work for council they might work for a university they might eat they might be in solidarity in a work context they believe with indigenous rights and indigenous issues but they don't take it home with them no, they don't. And that, that's a privilege that we don't have. Exactly. So and I guess that's why I have such a strong reaction to even some of the language that I was think, used. I think it's, and I think that that's really, really, really true and really important, really valid. And I put it to Libby at the end of the interview. I asked them what it was they were doing and I didn't get a satisfactory answer. Well, I did cut her off too, like two seconds. <laughs> but we... um. But we've had a chat since, and I think that's something that you need to reflect on is how it is you are complicit, which is like they like Libby said, and like we've continued to say, it's it's not a it's not about contending with whether or not you do have blood in your hands because you do. It's about understanding what you're doing now to leverage your access for other people. How is your privilege intersecting with someone else's oppression, and how can you use that opportunity to create opportunities for other people? That's a good start, I guess, and a nice start. Um, you know, uh, I I don't know. You know, I come from that. I come from that school of thought that is like, shut up and pay the rent, and then we might think you're a cool white person. But thank you for talking to that white expert because I would, you know, the conversation would have been really different. Um, I was outnumbered at the time. I wasn't about to act up. <laughs> oh, Joel. We, we we can't send you into these spaces anymore. One out then. Um, anyway, um, oh my God, how like how impossible is that? We are always the minority in any of these spaces. <sighs> true. We're gonna cut to a music break. You've been listening to Radio Skid Row, eighty eight point nine, Survival Guide with Joel and Lorna. We'll be back after this break with another guest. told me to be happy cause you always get what you want don't speak you said i have your love but not how much it will cost mama told me when i was a baby i'd love you but i don't 
And we're back. You're listening to Survival Guide with Joel and Lorna on Radio Skid Row 88.9 FM, taking you right through to 2 p.m. and maybe possibly a little bit over. Um, we was just talking about whiteness um, and talking to a white expert, Libby Porter, about some of the stuff that she's doing in Melbourne um, around the conversations, I guess, trying to talk to her people about the Paying conversations, the yeah, the, the uh, towards treaty and, you know, what that looks like down there in Victoria because, you know, New South Wales, 
unfortunately, the first state, they're really holding on to that colonialism. Um, you know, there's a lot of things. The fact that they've just had a, voted in a One Nation member, you know, kind of proves how much the New South Wales public is holding on to that colonialism and white supremacy. Um, hopefully they'll all be dead soon. Hopefully, but, you know, they keep breeding. Um, and, you know, they have the privilege to be able to keep breeding on our country while they control the way that our families are structured and keep taking children. Um, as I digress, uh, what what are we at? We're at a point where... We're going to shift the conversation. We've focused on the conversations around the intergenerational wealth. What are we calculating here? What are we calculating in terms of settler privileges and settler responsibilities? Yeah, righting this- the wrongs, I guess. And there was a question about legality. And which I scoffed at, you know, because this is really the underbelly of what this is all about, is this Unlawful. occupation is un, is illegal. The occupation that continues is uh, illegal, um, you know, and until reparations on a mass scale are paid and the genocide is acknowledged and the war that has gone on here, the undeclared war that continues to go on here, um, you know, is talked about and unpacked and acknowledged Um, all of these things they seem so out of reach but that's because white people are blinded by their whiteness and they're blinded by their entitlements and you know it's a privilege that we will never have unless people start to shift and leverage all of the wealth that they've accumulated and start to give back to our people um, and, you know, the people that come from the lands that have been dispossessed in order for these, everyone else to have a state of comfortability. I'm trying to bring this conversation to the front for people in Sydney, people on Radio Skid Row, and, and generally talking about how it is that this intergenerational wealth and these things can be better contextualized in mm. your own responsibilities towards the people around you, the communities that you're in, or the lack thereof. But now we want to talk to somebody else, other people pushing into their own spaces about having conversations around money, around history, around the accumulation of wealth and the disregard of Aboriginal narratives within the contextualization and the creation of the colonial myths that we exist in every day. We had a phone chat with uh, artist Ryan Presley. Uh, he's a He's a deadly artist. He's, you know, been working on a series called Blood Money and he's really been using his art to drive conversations, you know, that that a lot of people in this country don't want to have because they don't want to address how much they owe. That could possibly that could possibly create an equal playing field for our mob. Doing some amazing stuff with community, doing some amazing things about bringing these conversations into the art gallery. But we're going to cut to that interview now. We had a really great chat with Ryan. We'll be back with you after this. Uh, yeah, a 32-year-old artist living in Brisbane, born in Alice Springs, from Presley family, which originally from Peppermanati area, Moyle River, Daly River area, in Top End NT. And um, my mum's family came over in the 50s from Denmark. And yes, yeah, so I was born in Alice Springs and grew up there and 
low-income family and that and moved over to Brisbane here because um, there wasn't any unis or anything at the time in the 90s. And now so mum moved us over here because she wanted to get a better education in that. One of the first memories that you had of her hearing about Redfern? Well, I mean, probably one that sticks in my mind is the TJC reports on the media and then the riots and that that were broadcast on the media. I didn't go to Sydney a lot. So I remember seeing that as a young teenager, but I mean, I don't think it was really on my mind much before that, sort of between here and out, this and now spring. It seemed bizarre to me, like the whole, uh, the way that it all transpired, the way that that killing transpired and the circumstances were, and the way that it was sort of like riot police and all that on the coverage, very heavy-handed to further sort of compound on something that didn't look like it was handled particularly well, and that's like saying it in the nicest possible means. It's pretty disturbing. I remember being disturbed by it as an adolescent, but but other than that, like, really high on my radar. I didn't live there. I didn't live in Sydney or anything. So I've basically just been living here for since then. Uh, I've done my studies here and and through art college and all that, and yeah, doing my best now to make a go of it in the art world, comment on the society we're living in, how I've experienced it at least, yeah. Yeah, so commenting on what's happening in society and like with the Blood Money series, it's like it's one of the most sort of palpable objects of the state. So it has all the cultural significance of a Western society culture where all their symbols, all the activities that are deemed important, all the people who enact those behaviours who they deem important. Um, and it's the, I think, the single most important quantifier of a colonial project. So it quantifies the oppressed peoples, it quantifies their labour, it quantifies all the resources, uh, yeah, either human, mineral, spiritual, animal, whatever it may be. Um, so looking at how those objects are treated and how they're designed, I think yeah, I, I found really important to comment on. So um, I started working on the Blood Money series about 10 years ago, firstly looking at Aboriginal figures who have been often ignored or actively suppressed from historical records and teachings, who are obvious figures that break myths, saying that Aboriginal people didn't resist or fight back on white encroachment, um, which has long connections with cash because it was, you know, an important tool to pay armies to oppress and invade other areas of land masses. And looking how it works now, we keep a lot of communities poor, and I mean, my grandpa worked for rations and alcohol and that sort of thing, and had to raise his family off those sort of rations, whereas white people got paid. So that's an obvious boy to stratify a colonial society and keep ourselves under the heel, essentially. So everything in our economy is basically from that process of seeing marginalizing, massacring Aboriginal people, hence why I call it blood money. And everything we deal with in our day-to-day now is still from that ongoing process and is connected back to that root. You know.
still dealing with the series as well. Could you describe to our listeners? Yeah, so the original works are large-scale hand-drawn, hand-painted watercolour, so 100% watercolour paintings. Um, they're about a metre and a half long and a metre high. Um, and I've taken elements of the Australian currency um, that circulated today, like design elements, pattern elements, um, and re- redesigned portions of them and attached symbols and sort of scenarios uh, connected to the actual figures I've uh, portrayed on the on the banknote. So I've totally replaced basically all the people on the on the banknote. Um, so a lot of the time. It's in a response to what's on there now. So, like, years ago I did one with Kath Walker, who drew New Knuckle, and on the $10 note, replacing Mary Rive, Mary Gilmore. Um, so she was a poet on that, uh, who's on the note now, Mary Gilmore. Mm. Um, and so she had, like, a cattle train, and she wrote all this sort of poetry about... Um, nationalistic sort of um, pro-colonial um, tropes. Um, she wrote about Stockholm and all that sort of thing. And um, there's a cattle train on there with the, the cattle and a, a big cargo caravan on the back. Uh, Raymond Walker and talked about certain things he'd like me to include on there. On the East Coast, like family talk about uh, dolphin herding and that. So dolphins would assist the fishermen there to round up mullet and that into the nets and spears and that. Portion of that. Pretty phenomenal practice. And so dolphins respond to vibrations on the water from the community, like hitting spears and nets on the water uh, during the migration time. And then part of the catch of the fish should be shared back with the dolphins. There's an ongoing sort of cooperative relationship there. You know? So it's a very different approach to not only food production, but other animals and like treating other living sentient things, you know. My biggest interest in one of the blood money pieces is the representation of Pemaway on the $50 note. Yeah. yeah. You made an interesting decision compared to the other ones where instead of having the, the value that's kind of represented on the conventional note, you decided to replace the $50 symbol or the, the five zero with the infinity symbol. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, so because I've been doing this series on and off for close to a decade now, I did the initial set from both sides of the 10, both sides of the 20, both sides of the 50, both sides of the 100. From 2009 to 2011, I did those eight works. And then the year following, I was like, I'm not, not comfortable with the element of it, of like, the idea that these people could be perceived as being ranked, like 10 is less or worse, uh, the person on the 10s less worthy than the person on the 100 or something like that. And I was thinking about how would I make this a bit more comfortable with me, at least traditional aspects, like in general terms, instead of just like slotting in with a Western approach, you know, and um, a numerical approach and uh, hierarchy. Uh, 
actually a suit of action. They're looking at something that's a bit more, I think, appropriate as an infinite value in terms of undermining that capitalist colonial system that's been forced upon us. And what's so what undermines that system, you know, a system based on debt, is infinite credit or the infinite dollar. So it doesn't fit into that system anymore. It's also to me about that approach because, you know, people have been on this continent, well, now scientists are admitting 100,000 years, you know. When I was growing up, it was 40,000 years or 20,000 years. And over the years, it's like 50,000 and 55,000. Uh, now, 100,000, even 40,000, say, in our short lifetime is uh, almost infinite expanse. Like, it's almost not within comprehension how long that is. So I think that what I'm sort of uh, touching on with the infinite dollar as well. So now, I basically only paint the infinite dollar notes. Since like 2012, they're more of like me uh, tweaking the series or in the series now. Yeah, uh, some other black fellas and that has been all all good, you know, like similar to that. Like people, for the most part, are really happy about it or touched by it and that. Uh, I did a work about um, Fanny Dalbrook from um, from Perth area, and she was amazing. Like. They'd kick down people's doors and smash down their fences and stuff to maintain the traditional pathways, sunlight and that sort of thing in the Perth area. And they did a big community project about a few years ago, I think, in partnership with the National Trust and my co descendants in relation. They used the artwork I designed about her as one of the covers on their publications they put together. That was really like an amazing outcome for me personally. Black that involved in the ongoing conversations about her. I mean, there's always strange responses from non-Aboriginal people and white people and that. And a lot of it is positive and good. Some of it, some people get a bit touchy. I remember overhearing one guy saying, I'm about to be in sacrilegious or that sort of thing along those lines. I had a good one because the few of the more recent ones I've designed at the MCA last, last year, early this year, just closed. Yeah, it was like Australia Day. I, I wasn't in town, obviously, but someone I know had gone to visit the show on Australia Day or whatever. So people were coming in all those shitty little flags and that, you know. He must have been a tourist and, like, just gotten some currency. And he's looking and actually pulled the 50 out of his wallet and was, like, comparing it, like, actively. So I think that was a good outcome, like, getting people to, like, actually engage with what they're handling. One really good outcome was the... Uh, with the cash exchange terminal that was there at MCA in January. I'm not sure if you heard, but it raised over 36 grand in exchanges. So over $36,000 of Australian money came through the booth. Yeah. All of that money goes to community organizations. So they didn't know Sydney that well. I had to ask the MCA Aboriginal Advisory Board because I earmarked for local organizations, so the childcare in the Redfern area, Alexandria area, that's going to get a third of it. There's a place in La Perouse that's going to get a third of it. And then there's a youth center in Alice Springs, so my family's had a Yeah, what's coming up for you next? Uh, I'm just actually finishing off another banknote for um, Cairns Art Gallery. They got a show in June, I think, for the art fair that they have there or in conjunction with the art fair mm. and that's a, a local elder Arnie Rose Collis who passed away a few years ago 
Um, but she was like the first person to get a human rights award in Australia, like ever. She did like decades of work within North Queensland communities, both in and out of government, often getting fired from government roles because she criticised the government for taking no action and being incompetent or willingly incompetent. And she got like an OAM as well. Yeah, so pretty remarkable woman. She started all these homeless shelter services and um, one that's still ongoing in Cairns, childcare centre, I think. Uh, alcohol rehabilitation services all throughout Queensland. Yeah, so really amazing person as well. So finishing that off. How how trusting are a lot of these people, um, and I guess their family members, um, you know, with you using their image as well, I guess. Um... Yeah, so I, I do my best to talk to families as in-depth as I can. If I can find them, like some of the people I've done, like from two centuries ago, you know. Yeah. Um, and being the way that Emma was treated, a lot of them didn't have descendants, you know. So, yeah, talking to the Collis family and talking about it and getting okay, it's not usually an issue because I'm talking about people who have done amazing things and I'm putting it in a positive light as well. That's one of the upsides of the, the money as a vehicle for these stories is we're being essentially programmed in a way to that these were positive, you know, positive objects. Immediately eye-catching, like they're sort of trained to recognise these images and patterns and shapes. And, and a lot of Australian money is what, what's been one of my annoyances with the notes is that a lot it doesn't come from, you know, British or European illustrative patterning traditions. They're not that they have a lot of patterning traditions, but so the notes themselves, even the patterns and colours on them, I think have been appropriated on some level, you know. A lot of concentric shapes, concentric patterns, there's concentric circles, like more blatantly just on the twenty. I think one of the about the blood money stuff is that I can take back some of these patterns, you know. At least to in my view, more appropriate recipients, you know. Land in the cut though, easy. Tryna see what up though, Brooklyn, home of the cut though. Notorious, y'all know how the rest go sleeping. One eye open, too smart cause I'm always scoping. Watching, seeing how these lames look, lazy. This how you get your frame took money. I got money. Money, I got money. Talking, always talking. That's your problem. You were always talking. Rockstar, mix with that ghetto chick. Try me. I wish a nigga would, bitch. Hold up. Who gon' hold us? Uh. Not the cemetery or the penitentiary. Damn, my contemporaries. I'm too legendary. It's so money. I got money. Money. I got money. I'm money. Money, I got money All my life I had to grind and hustle I had to work like Kobe just to shine like Russell They say, glad you made it happen overnight 
like Show you right, nigga, I'm in the crib Trying to find the BPM Rehearsing for the next show in my kitchen Rush off for tour, but can't tell you where I've been Maybe after 20 years, I'll start to take it in Right now, I'm chasing in in Dover Street again I'm introverted, I'm not open to new friends But if you're real cute, then I have to think again Shop the wrong way so you can stay off trend and look like Money When I talk, yeah, hold on, now, now, hold on, now, now, slow down, down, down. No, not right now. Say, oh, now, 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 oh, now, 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 hold that down, down. No, no, no. You know I reside with the weather the best. You know how we ride on the leather and that. You know you can't see me. You know better than that. 
You know you can't beat me, you know better than that. I'm undefeated, slight old foe. Got mine off Expo. Since Jay stayed off the Ocho, I've been dripping salsa going loco. I used to ride the pine while the vest go. So you can shine on the next go. Flying high like the next low. I put white walls on the Elko. No gravelly for an elbow. Wavier than the sailboat. I don't even want to tell folks. But I might sneeze if I smell broke. Got them scared to drop like jail show. Do you think they hot? Hell no. Hold on, now, now. Hold on, now, now. Slow down, down, down. No, not right now. Say, oh, now, now, now. Oh, now, now, now. Hold that down, down. No, not right now. Hold on, now, now. Oh, now, now, now. Slow down, down, down. No, not right now. And you're back listening to Survival Guide. Survival Guide. Whoa, 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 whoa. We don't have time to get all hype and into that kind of beat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Whoa, whoa, that was way too happy. Um, so we were just listening to an interview that we had with Ryan Presley, um, an artist based in Brisbane uh, from Alice Springs, who's been working on a, sh- on, a, on a series for the last 10 years, essentially, 11 years. Um called Blood Money, putting Aboriginal faces and Aboriginal narratives back into Australian currency. And the, I think it's really interesting, um, one of the kind of the things he brought up in relationship to some of the research he was doing for one of the works, and it kind of connects with what Libby was talking about in recognising the history of what was here before settlement, that there were communities, there were economies that continued and continue to exist today, but there were there were deep, rich, non-extractive relationships that existed on this country. And Ryan talking about how the East Coast mob were herding dolphins mm. to create a sustainable fishing practice that was in partnership with another species. Mm. Well, well, I remember when we were talking about this, I was mentioning, you know, the interspecies kinship stuff um, that's very much a part of our um, culture as well. You know, we don't see uh, land and animals as something separate from ourselves. They're very much um, have the same relationship that we would have within our families, like sibling relationships and stuff like that. And that goes into the whole totemic system, you know, and I'm, I'm using white words to describe these these things that exist a lot longer than these ter- this terminology as well. Um, you know, we, we had a very efficient system of maintaining country and maintaining culture and maintaining relationships that has been disrupted and dismissed and devalued since. And, you know, anytime we kind of are having these conversations, it's still being suppressed, it's still being silenced and it's being controlled in a way that, doesn't make all these people in these institutions accountable, which I find really interesting as well. Um, you know, so that's why I think that Ryan's work is so great because just putting black faces right on their money, you know, really kind of invokes some 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 discomfort. Mm, um, definitely. You know, they raised 36 grand 
I just when when that was said, I was just like thirty six grand, thirty six grand, thirty six grand. And what it does is it brings you back into relationship with that currency as well. You know, like it, it, even the, even what he even what he mentioned in the in the interview about someone you know pulling the note from their pocket, looking at contending with the currency, with the blood money, with the the thing that's literally there in relationship to his own work. And I think no, none of us do that enough. No. Money is like a skeleton, you know? It's not just currency. It's like everything around you has it holding it up. We walk around. If you take our skin off, you see our skeletons. Everything has a skeleton of what it's worth sort of sitting inside of it, right? In a capitalist system, you know, like it can be a chair, but it's also $20. We've been institutionalized and forced into talking and thinking about our lives in this way. And I think that there's insight into the work that things that like Ryan are doing and relate trying to think about how to exist in a more equitable system that contend with those notions and, and, and challenge those things. Because I myself, I'm, I find myself internalizing those capitalist ways of being and doing where I'm trying to be productive and I'm trying to do this and I'm trying to do that because that's the system that we've been forced into. So it's always refreshing to hear someone challenging those narratives and challenging those ideas and seeing it play out differently, redistributing wealth to the community. That's what I love is hearing about is hearing about sharing that money um, through different communities and the endless possibilities that can come from our communities having access to wealth after so much has been extracted from them. Um, you know, this is the thing. Look at look at what you mob have done to our country when yous have been in control of it. That's kind of that's kind of the point that we're trying to make. Like, look at everything and that is happening now with, you know, the conservation stuff, environmental stuff. Our our land is you mob don't know how to maintain our country. We do. And we're always being left out of the conversations around this. And we're always being separated from country. And, you know, I, I was just mentioned I, I made a note before just about how I find this kind of idea of whiteness and these kinds of um, thinking around entitlement and white privilege that exists in this country. And, you know, there's something just very, there's something just very, very sci-fi about white people, um, people with, you know, people that are lacking melanin living in one of the hottest climates in this world. And it just invokes thoughts uh, um, about Total Recall, that movie. You know, and we talk. I, I mentioned it a little bit to you about, you know, if you if you've seen that Total Recall, you'll see that everything about it and the drama in it is about <laughs> is about colonialism, really, and about the kind of lies and and things that will be created and reinforced to keep people in a situation to keep people controlled in a in controlled environment and controlled space and controlling the way that they think, um, you know, and, and really that's what it's all about when we talk about money is because we lack it and we don't have access to it, we really have no way of, 
of addressing our own issues. We need to be able to have the resources to build our own communities back up because, you know, that's how Redfern and Waterloo and that community become so great in the first place. It's so great in um, Aboriginal people's memories um, and even in the whole industrial revolution, you know, it has a big part to play in everybody's story, but not many people are aware of it, um, you know. So really thinking about the possibilities and the endless possibilities if we actually had access to some of this, some of this wallang, some of this money, some of this wealth that you mob all, you know, all really sit really comfortable with on stolen land, on land that our people have been massacred for and are still being moved and dispersed and displaced for. You mob to have your flat whites and lovely apartments and... All the access that you take for granted. And so that your kids as well, you know, will be able to have a better, better chance at life on top of the intergenerational poverty that my child will inherit. And that's what it really comes down to. You know, you want to address the 20-year gap between life expectancies and all this sort of stuff. We really have to start thinking this way. And I'm getting on a bit of a – I'm getting on Do it. on Do my it. shit um, you because, it. you know, money is it's a – the truth, man. Money you got to hit them up. It's, it's a hard it's, – it's a, it's a tricky topic for me. Um, but I'm going to play the rest of – our walk around because there's an interesting thing that has happened since season one as well. And uh, we spoke a little bit about it, but I guess, you know, really getting into the, getting into the gut of all these problems now and really linking it to what we're talking about here in Redfern Waterloo. So we're here at Redfern Park. It's a really good place to be able to really use these tools that we're talking about of how to navigate country the way that our people would. Waterloo was traditionally a swamp. Redfern, this whole area, was traditionally a swamp. An extension of the waterways coming from Moore Park, which would have trickled down from King's Cross and then on towards the canal. This spot was first owned, one of the first white landowners in the area was a Greek settler and was called John the Baptist and he had turned this place into community markets and community garden for all the governor's wives to get away from the colony and come and um, have their their brunches and their teas and things like that. Bougie shit. Bougie hipster shit really. Doesn't really change from you know what's kind of happening today really if you walk up Redfern Street and around the place as a great way to be able to peel back the layers and really think about this place being a swamp and think about the traditional um, topography of the country and where we're standing. A farm used to be across the road and apparently the cricket games that were played in this park in those early years they used to have to stop their games and run across the road and help the farmers drag cows out of huge bogs and things like that. So it just kind of gives you an idea of that topography. So I spoke about the first white landowners, Dr Redfern, and then there was 
all of these convicts that were kind of given positions of power over other convicts who were given the land, where am I pointing, east of Redfern. So they were given the adjoining Waterloo plot. There was running mills, which tells you that there was running water. All of these kind of things uh, piece together a complete view of of what this place looked like. The palm trees that we see here, they were um, gifted to the community by John, John the Baptist, as well as the fountain in the middle. Across the road as well, that, that site where I was talking about some of those farms um, where people had to run across. When I was growing up here, that was where a lot of the older people in Department of Housing lived. So I tell a story about being a young kid, skipping school, walking through here, getting up to mischief and getting pulled over by an old white woman who asked me to jump through a window. And she told me that it was because she had lost her keys. And for a second, I thought I could possibly be arrested and charged with being an accomplice to this old white woman, break and enter of someone's house. And it wasn't until I shimmied myself head first through the window and seen that there was a picture of her and her son sitting on the bedstand. So walk through, let her in. But these are the type of stories that, you know, I'm sure that a lot of other people growing up here would have. In other areas, I've always noticed elderly white people kind of view me as a threat. So it's very interesting that the elderly people in this community really treated you like one of their kids and grandkids. And whatever they needed, they would pull you over to go and do it. Very much like those farmers would pull those cricketers over to help them out with the farms. So that spot over there, what we're talking about is now been cleared of those Department of Housing buildings, the older brick buildings um, before the flats kind of went up in the 70s or 60s and part of that larger experimenting social housing. They've all been cleared, been cleared for some time. There's been an empty plot sitting there for some years now and that plot is now been given to private developers as a part of a build to rent scheme. They're giving away land that has been fought for and resisted for as long as colonisation has been active in this country. This community has been fought for bit by bit by bit to create a safe space for Aboriginal people on top of the layered history and, you know, that dispossession and then coming back. But the truth of the matter is there's always been Aboriginal people here working in the factories. There's always been Aboriginal people here. And that's one of the reasons why we need to retain that presence. But these mob now are giving away land that they still cannot prove or show receipts for. They're giving away land that has been fought for by our mob and were killed for it. Giving it away for free to private developers to experiment on the best ways to make money and capital for themselves. You know, we'd really like to be able to see some kind of community representation in all of these deals. But unfortunately, our people are left out of the discussions all the time. We're all a part of the experiment. We are. Our people have been experimented on since 1788 and it isn't stopping. They're even more blatant with their experiments and even more inhumane with their experiments.
say he's got a dollar, but a dollar won't make stay. And we're back. We are. The last part of Survival Guide, Episode 2, Season 2, Black Order 2.0, coming to the conclusions, coming to what's going on in our community. Yeah, I mean... Bringing it all back. That was a beautiful contemplation and a and, and, and a filling in of the history um relating I think beautifully some of those very funny anecdotes around the ways in which, you know, the the women, the the, the gentry would gather in the park and engage. Oh, ladies' lunch and mm, things like mm. that, you know. They're they're everywhere now on Redburn Street. Um, which is really interesting, you know, and it just makes you feel even more out of place in a in a place where I've spent my whole life in. Um and I'm sure that I'm sure that, you know, our people have been feeling that in that spot as well as, you know, some of the other things we talked about in in episode one. Um, These banners have been a really great way to just tie what's going on in our community um, back into the national conversations and international conversations that are existing at the moment and, you know, really just kind of laying it all out there, our context and where we sit in this and where we need to bring that conversation back to. As well as, well as thinking about now what's currently unfolding in the community with the Build the, Rent, the Build the Rent site. We've seen in the past, in the period of time between season one and season two, the announcement of this site has gone forward. It's been recognised now that the state government is handing over a parcel of land across the road from Redfern Oval to build an experimental build-to-rent development at no cost to the developers. That's the only way that the government can equitably see there being any way to build housing that isn't at the top tier of the speculative um, property cycle, completely devoid of any imagination or any idea of moderation in, in terms of how it wants to regulate property within the city essentially giving up its own responsibility and handing over land that has been fought for by this community for free to developers to build rentals that more likely than not we still won't be able to afford to live in. No, and, you know, when I look at that empty plot of land, I look at, you know, I look at it the way that our people have been teaching me to look at it and I see invaluable relationships. I see you know, so la- so much layered usage and it's so resourceful just to think about what you could actually extract within an Aboriginal worldview from that part 
And the fact that we still don't have a place in in anywhere in inner city area where, you know, artefacts could be held, where Aboriginal people can have conversations about community management and about you know, programs, about addressing issues and gaps that exist. There's no place for our young people to even talk about being proud about being black. Especially while we're seeing the community go through such intense upheaval and such intense change with the redevelopment of, Re- of Waterloo, the redevelopment of the block. The community's changing and there's not and we've spoken about this before, there's no opportunities right now for the community to take up space and have a conversation about these things. To no, well, they're, they're giving away the land from underneath us and we're not even a part of that discussion. Meanwhile, you know, our people, what's going on in Waterloo and Redfern, again, will ripple out to, to the rest of the country. And this has always been, I guess, the responsibility that people at that point have is to warn everybody else. So I guess, you know, you might be, you need to listen because this is what's going on. And I guess I want to ask a question, you know, to the powers that be at the moment, City, City Council and all these people, how come you haven't disrupted this plan? You know, because all of these spaces that you're buying with Aboriginal money are, are still, they're, they're not addressing the the widening gap from what's being taken away from the community at the moment and what they are celebrating as a give back while they're giving away stolen land and stolen wealth that they still cannot prove that they own in the first place. They still cannot show receipts for. Yeah, they stole it. There's no receipt for a stolen item. No, but they still want to keep talking about making that okay. Mm -hmm. Justifying that. There's so much potential for what that site could be as well, which I think is one of the things that they don't understand. They think that Redfern is housing. We need to have more housing and we need to address housing, which is important, of course. But the fact that there is a community that's asking for space, there isn't a community that has fought for that space. Well, we spoke to Rodney. There's still no black museums in this country. True. There's still no space where you can go and actually learn about all this sort of stuff. And that's what makes the work that I'm doing in my community so much more important. Our people are, you know, because there's no space, we've become these museums. We've become these wells of information because where do you go to find it all? In, in, the, black, in the black heart of this country, there's still no, you know, the black representation is being eroded. On that note. We're going to be throwing an event That's at 107. Right. We are currently fundraising for this event. We want to showcase this community in what we think is a very important time to reflect and to think about how we go forward, to look at the histories of this community, the strength of this community, the power of the people who went informing it, as well as the new faces and new people coming up out of this community. I guess we, we really want to push this family history project and document the dispersal and the Aboriginal families that still exist and have still maintained, um, you know, that they've maintained presence in the area. Um, and we really would like to document all the mobs that have been pushed out as well, you know, come back, celebrate, celebrate this 
this space with us and, you know, be a part of the takeover because that's how we're really talking about it is we're taking over space so that we have some black representation, we are celebrating blackness, but we're also trekking how we've got to this point. So we've been talking about it as from self-determination to gentrification. We're talking, uh, uh, you know, our elders about that and a lot of the people that were a part of the forming of the organisations, but we're also thinking about having a Black Rhymes night, Black Poetry night. We've got food, you know, prepared by an Aboriginal chef. We're trying to make it as as immersive as possible to really just show what we can do when we have space, what we can do when we have resources, how great of an event that we can create that is total black, you know, it's a total blackout and it's totally about inviting the community it's all about the community and if it doesn't involve them then it's very much you know kind of a waste of time isn't it um so please if you're listening and you have something to spare if you've been thinking about what we have been addressing this episode and thinking about what your responsibilities are as as someone taking up space in in this in this country and 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 on this on this territory on these unceded lands, uh, we have a GoFundMe running for the event. It's on the Radio Skid Row Facebook page, uh, as well as online. If you go to GoFundMe and Google and and search the 107 Survival Guide Takeover, 107 Projects Takeover Survival Guide. It's also on Radio Skid Row's um, at the top of their page. It's been pinned, so you know this. The links are all there. We'll be putting the links up when we put this episode up online as well Um, and yeah really think about have a listen to this episode really think about all of the things that you have today because of places like Redfern because of our community and what are you going to give back right now when we need to shed some light on what's happening that's us that's us you've been listening to Radio Skid Row this is Survival Guide with Joel and Lorna 88.9 FM We'd like to say thank you to the CBF and Radio Skid Row for having us today. Yeah, we'd like to thank our, our listeners, our white expert. And thank we'd you, like Libby Porter. Ryan, as well. Um, and yeah, just thank everyone for keep tuning in as well. And for the mob that have already donated some money, thank, thank you, you so much. It really, it really makes a big difference. Every dollar counts. And I know that sounds so boring to say because that's what everybody raising funds means. But every single $10 that we get means that that's another light. That's another microphone. That's another person that we can get into the space. Yeah, that's another poet we can get up on stage. That probably has never been up on stage before as well, you know. Keep it locked to this station because... Skid Row's always doing the deadliest. They're always doing the most radical sort of acts by passing the mic to people that often are told to shut the fuck up. So thank you again. Keep it locked. Check us out next Friday from 12 to 2 every Friday on 88.9 FM Radio Skid Row. Survival Guide. Have a good weekend. We out. Oh, baby. I call you up, you act like your pussy on interrupt I don't have no trouble with you fucking me But I have a little problem with you not fucking me 
baby, you know I'ma take care of you. Cause you said you got my baby and I know it ain't true. Is it a good thing? No, it's bad, bitch. For good or worse, makes you switch. So I walk on over with my crystal. Bitches, niggas, put away your pistol. Dirty won't be having that in this house. Cause, bitch, I'll cripple your style. Now that you heard my charming voice, you couldn't get another nigga. The coochie won't get moist. If you wanna look good and not be bummy, yo, you better give me that money. So give me my streaks and give me my honey Radios play this all day, every day Recognize I'm a fool and you love me None of you know, better look at me funny You know my name down, give me my money Hey, Eddie Murphy taught me that back of the but house. But give him a money. Hey. 